Welcome to week five of our From the Ground Up series. And this is a series that we're actually finishing up next week. Preston Cox is going to preach our last week of this series. I'm really excited to hear from him, his perspective. But um, we've been in this series for five weeks now, taking a deep dive into our practices and our beliefs and really just hunkering down and reflecting on what we're about and what we want to be about and who we are, if you don't know, as someone maybe new to the community or as a visitor on perhaps our social media. We plan to put all of these sermons on our About Me page and they're just going to kind of live there as a live kind of recorded about us. Uh, so all of these sermons are going to go there. And for that reason, we really need to talk about a kind of a dense topic called hermeneutics. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys know what that is? It's kind of a, I don't know, I call it like a seminary word, but it's a really important word. And you have a hole in it if we didn't talk about it. And so I'm going to give you a definition. Uh, and this idea of hermeneutics is not specific just to, you know, faith contexts, but understood in a church context uh, and a church culture is kind of understood as specifically biblical hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is sort of like interpretation, but it's even broader. And so my definition for hermeneutics is simply this, the process of discernment and the methodology used when approaching the biblical text. And so I'm so glad that we have so many different elements in our service. I'm so glad we had the lectionary readings today that really spoke for themselves and the, the litanies, the songs, the centering prayer, because this teaching moment is going to be a little bit more informational. And for that reason, I do have some slides, and I hope that this helps you understand how our community allows scripture to inform its gatherings and its work and our ethos, our way of being, and why we make the choices we do in everything we do, whether it's the elements we put in the guide or the events that we put on the calendar. Our hermeneutic uh, sort of defines all the choices that we make. And so this sermon's going to be a lot more conversational. I'm Normally, I have a manuscript today, I have an outline, and I'm going to just talk to you guys about several points that are important to us as we consider our hermeneutic as a community. And I do want you to know that I'm drawing from previous sermons, and so you can go look on our podcast for some of those. Just in the last year, I've probably preached twice on biblical interpretation, and uh, I am drawing from those, but go check those out on our podcast or on our archive on our website if you want even more. <laughs> so... A big reason why we're doing this is because I think that when people who follow us on social media and kind of see what we're about, or even people visit us, whether they say it or not, and sometimes they do, people often wonder, do we care about the Bible? And my answer to that is yes. <laughs> we care about the Bible a lot around here. Um, it just may look differently the way that we present that kind of care through our actions than maybe what some of us were used to in our previous contexts and the, tr the traditions that we grew up in. 
So part of our work as a community, and we have lots of work, right? But part of our work is the work of reclaiming. We reclaim things instead of abandon them. Not everything. We have to do the work of sifting through, but we reclaim church instead of abandoning church, right? A lot of people in this community were kind of one step away from being done with church but decided to give it another go. We're doing the work of reclaiming what's beautiful about church here. We're doing the work of reclaiming the church traditions and the just ancient traditions in general and spiritual practices instead of reacting to things that hurt us. In that reaction, we do the the really intentional work of reclaiming what's beautiful about so much of our faith tradition. And so the Bible is one of those things that needs to be reclaimed because we want to do the good work of using the Bible how it was intended to be used, which means to use the Bible for love, to use the Bible for salvation or new life, to use the Bible for empowerment. And we also know that the Bible has been and is often used to promote fear or to promote guilt or to promote manipulation, whatever it may be. And so we want to reclaim the Bible so that it can't just be used for those things, but that we want it being used for the good spirit stuff. And we also need the Bible to be reclaimed because we want to offer creative and responsible interpretation, which I'll talk more about in just a bit. We want to know how to follow Jesus. That's why we're here, right? We're Jesus followers. And the Bible helps us understand what Jesus was about, the kind of life Jesus lived. And we don't know how to best follow Jesus without looking to the Gospels. And so when we do the work of reclaiming, what happens is, and specifically with the Bible, we discover all of this untapped beauty that we never knew was there. Not just in the Gospels, but everywhere. In the entire Holy Scriptures, we find beauty in so many places. And so tapping into that beauty is a gift. And so, yes, we love the Bible around here. We just approach it in our own unique way. And that's what today is about. It is about explaining our approach because it is very intentional and it is very purposeful. It is not random. And so here it is. We have today a basic, oh, you know what's so funny? I put on um, the slide. What did I put on the slide? Not that one, the next one. Ah, okay. Peace hermeneutic. There it is. (laughs) I thought I put something else. We have basic assumptions that inform our mode of operating. And so these are the points. We just have one slide, actually two if you count that graph that he had up. Um, But our first point is that our approach to scripture informs our collective posture. (laughs) So, all the things that we're preaching about in this series, oneness, which Fran preached about a couple of weeks ago, Matt preached about non-dualistic thinking, the disruptive nature of peace, Preston's going to preach next week. All of those things that we're preaching about are informed by our approach to engaging Scripture. And vice versa, when we engage scripture, this is what we discover, a call to to abandon dualistic thinking, a call to oneness, a call to disruptive peace. So it's the cyclical rhythm that our approach is informed by our posture and our posture is informed by our approach. 
And so another one of our points, our basic assumptions and mode of operating when we engage scripture around here, is that we tend to give lived experience more power than it usually gets in other faith communities, or at least more acknowledgement, because everybody uses their experience to inform their theology. It's just that not everybody owns up to it. They just say, this is what the Bible says, but actually it's their experience informing their interpretation of what the Bible says. And so around here, we like to give lived experience more credit, the credit that it deserves, we think. And so a way to understand this is with that graph that you had up earlier, the Westland Quadrilateral. This is another seminary thing. Anybody heard of it, though, before? Anyone? Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and this is a methodology that was developed by John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist movement. So a long time ago, he developed this methodology that suggests that we use scripture, tradition, reason, and experience for our theological reflection and to engage our faith. Now, Scripture is the foundational element of all of this, and that is what makes us distinctly Christian, is that part of that distinct Jesus following is that we need Scripture to do that. And so Scripture is sort of the foundation of everything else that happens. But what happens is, is that lived experience tends to get the short end of the deal. In a lot of church contexts, you don't get this empowerment to trust your own spirit, what you're hearing from God, more than any of the other things. Church tradition is too important, right? So it's you're either in or you're out. You either believe how we do, and soul autonomy does not have a lot of space. But we believe that lived experience is really, really important, and here are just a few reasons why it matters. It matters because otherwise people on the margins get ignored. So lived experience enables us to go to the margins and lift up other voices and experiences, theological interpretations outside of the dominant culture. So liberation theology, black theology, feminist and womanist theology, these specific lenses of the human experience need to And the only way for us to do that is to give more power to lived experience. And that's really, really important. And also, this helps us recognize the lived experience that's happening inside the biblical text, right? So we know, it's no surprise, that evil is often perpetuated within the pages of Scripture. Lived experience helps us to face that. We don't ignore it. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't try and work it out to make it seem like it's actually good or God-ordained. But within our holy text, we face the fact that there's violence, there's injustice, there's corruption. We see patriarchy and racism and classism. We see misogyny and rape and abuse. We see slavery as a normal life. And again and again, we see people in power taking of the vulnerable and in the, the word of God, the law used to oppress vulnerable people. So lived experience is ultimately what helps us come to the conclusion that just because these things are included in Holy Scripture doesn't make them right. It doesn't make things like racism or sexism or homophobia God-ordained, and it does not mean that we are bound to operating under these systems today. So at the core, lived experience empowers us to trust our own spirit 
our Imago Day. This is scripture that we were each created in the image of God. That the image that the Spirit of God lives in us. This is called this concept is called Imago Day. We say that a lot. That's what we mean. We were each created in the image of God, and the Spirit of God lives within us. And this is not just for our own personal needs. This is a protection so that exploitative domination systems in our world that are very real don't have a monopoly on the Bible as a tool for manipulation, which we've seen play out over the course of history. And so this is really, soul autonomy is really, really important to us. And we realize that it's not either or. It's not really important and everything else isn't important. It's both and. Even as we need other people and even as we need the wisdom of community, we also need to have the space to each individually engage our own faith and trust the spirit in us. And again, Preston's going to preach on all of this next week. Our other assumption, and we have several more, is, and this hopefully is an obvious one, but we view scripture through the lens of social justice. So last week I preached on the disruptive nature of peace, and this was a justice-oriented sermon that said the work of peacemaking is disruptive work. It disrupts the political process, it disrupts the social order, everything about peacemaking. Well, one part of peacemaking that is often neglected is this disruptive nature, which is a justice-oriented way to look at peace. We also know that if we take out every instance of justice in the Bible, every instance of God using women, God elevating the oppressed, God helping the poor, God caring about the least of these, every instance of the widow and the orphan being cared for, that we know that our Bible is literally in shambles without And so our Bible is not whole without this lens. Also, we just believe that this is what Jesus is talking about. We talk about the kingdom of God on earth, the kingdom of heaven on earth. This is the kind of work we want to do here. This idea that humanity thriving is our job to work toward right now. This is what we believe Jesus is talking about. And this is the the lens with, with which we read all of scripture. Also, as we get deeper into this kind of hermeneutic, we start to get tap on how we specifically engage and interpret scripture. And here, hopefully, probably also obvious, we aren't limited to literalism in our interpretation. Now, there are a lot of different, I don't want to bore you too much, but there are all kinds of different models and ways of thinking that theologians and academics suggest for how the canon was put together. And some of these, I mean, all of them bleed into our church culture and then through the pulpit and through teachings, and we don't always recognize what's behind it. Um, But some people, and I would say a lot of us grew up in this model, believe that the Holy Spirit divinely dictated word for word the words of every book that ended up in the Bible or in the canon, as we call it. And so through this theory, they say that the Holy Spirit divinely dictated through the writers of the original autographs. So that means only of the originals, nothing else, and by the way, access to any of these originals. So people with this perspective will use words like inerrancy, meaning the Bible is without error in all matters. When they say this, they are talking about the original autographs, again, that no one has actually ever seen. 
And so a word that I have appreciated as opposed to inerrancy in my own journey has been infallibility. And the idea that the Bible is unfailing as it pertains to Christian faith and practice. Greg Boyd says the Bible is unfailing in all that God intends to use for it. And I believe this. I believe that as followers of God, we are inheritors of this sacred story, and we have a responsibility in how we approach it. And so for me, reading and interpreting the Bible literally is the antithesis of responsible interpretation because this kind of reading has perpetuated evil in our world for a long time. It's created actual harm in society, caused real suffering to the least of these. It's been a way for the powers that be to validate institutionalized oppression. It's been used as a tool to uphold corruption. And because of this, so many people have been kept from actually knowing the God of love because the Bible has been used in this destructive way. Literalism is a man-made tool of manipulation. And dictation is just another word that sustains domination systems, keeping marginalized voices from contributing to thoughtful interpretation. So we don't get the whole picture with this. And so this is a part that may or may not ruffle feathers, depending on who's listening. Uh, and it might tempt people to think that we don't value thoughtful exegesis around here. But actually, we value it so much that it's one of the points on my PowerPoint. I think, oh, you're behind. <laughs> Next. There, see? We value thoughtful exegesis around here. We don't just pluck stuff out of the Bible. We don't just make stuff up. We don't just say what we want to say. We consider the context every time we engage scripture. And a gift that I would like to give you that I share every time I talk about biblical interpretation is to think of the three worlds, okay? This is an easy way to remember it, and it's easy to look up on the internet and do research using the three worlds. Three worlds, I'm referencing Howard and Young's An Introduction to the Bible. It's the idea that the world behind the text invites us to think about context, so everything going on, Back when it was written, the social, political, ethnic, and economic realities, the world of the text asks us to consider the structure of the text itself. So who was the writer? What was the date that it was written? What was the setting around the book? Who was the audience? And then the world in front of the text reminds us that there are not simply stories from the past. These are not just stories from the past for us. They're sacred word. They can speak to us somehow and in some way at all times for all people when we are responsibly engaging the text and when we are responsibly listening. <clears throat> so this involves work on our part, right? We can't just read it and then decide this is what it means. We hold these things in tension. And so we become responsible in our interpretations when we understand all these things, when we understand that there's layers upon layers of editing involved with every single text, understanding that the books are not necessarily in chronological order, understanding the differences and intricacies and overlaps between the different audiences in, for example, the gospel stories. And so we understand all of this and we become responsible interpreters of scripture and we consider context always, but at the same time, 
we hold this value of thoughtful exegesis in tension with an, in, an abundant appreciation for mystery. So we embrace mystery over certainty. That's my next point. We embrace mystery over certainty around here. This means that we entrust spirit is working. We let go of our ego's need to control everything. And we believe that, like my Old Testament professor in seminary, Dr. Nan, would say, God is not hung up on being perfectly right. If God can let go of it, so can we. Ego's hung up on being perfectly right. Spirit is not hung up on everything being perfectly right. So I believe that mystery is the gift we receive when we become liberated from all of this. When we can understand that the Bible isn't a science book, the Bible isn't a history book, the Bible is a book about God and about humanity and about love and about salvation. And so when we can let go of the need for the Bible to be read literally or for it to be without error and perfectly neat and tidy, we can read the Bible in deeper and more fulfilling ways. And I think this matters to some of you because if you're like me, you might have quit reading the Bible for a while because you didn't know what to do with it after you started deconstructing. But actually, a whole new world of the text becomes known to us when we can appreciate the mystery intention with the responsibility. So we read the Bible with context in mind, but we also make mind make room for creativity. I believe that creativity is how we let that mystery in, is by being open to creativity. So we intentionally insert creativity. Every time we exegete or read the Bible devotionally, every time we study scripture, we grant mystery space. This is why I love that song. We sang it today, and it was a coincidence. Well, maybe it wasn't, because Fran's very thoughtful, <laughs> but I just finished the sermon, so. That song, From the Head to the Heart. My favorite line in, like, all songs ever is where it says, more than words, more than good ideas, I found your love in an open field. That is mystery. That is saying, okay, it's not saying throw away words and ideas. It's just saying more than that. This mystery, this thing I can't explain, this love, this God presence, this is what I found. I found it in mystery. And so when we get into this kind of a posture of embracing mystery, not being afraid of the unknown, it isn't hard to come to the conclusion of my next point, which is that we assume around here that the canon isn't closed. Does that make sense? So, as Matt likes to say, the Bible is not the fourth member of the Trinity. The Bible is not God. God is God, and the Bible is the Bible, and the Bible is spirit-breathed, and the Bible is sacred text, and the Bible has some kind of authority in our lives. But God is God. And understanding the complex history of the canon's creation, I think, is helpful for people here if that kind of rattles things for you. But basically, when Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit descended and came down to the people at Pentecost, this was the beginning of the church in the Bible, right? This was the marker of the early church. But it would be 400 years 
until anything even faintly resembling our understanding of the modern Bible would come to be with the translation of the Latin Vulgate, which, by the way, isn't even similar to a lot of your Bibles because it has the Apocrypha in it, and I bet a lot of you don't have that. I'm just guessing. Um, But yeah, so the early church, this beautiful grassroots movement of Jesus followers without the Bible as we know it for hundreds of years, lifetimes, And not only did they survive, but they thrived, and God still worked, and the movement called Christianity stuck. So it's not that provocative to believe that the canon isn't closed. What I mean by that is that God still works, not just in the Bible, but outside the Bible abundantly. This is simply us acknowledging that God is working right now. That spirit is moving, that we can find God in creation, in nature, in our ordinary moments, in our ritual moments, in our celebration, in our grief. We find God in the vulnerable and we have other books and other resources and in song and in dance and in silence. Spirit is moving. We love the Bible around here, but it is not the end-all be-all when it comes to our connecting with God. So, final, finally, yeah, finally, my last point, and my favorite, because I think it kind of encircles all of this. We try to be innovators as opposed to protectors. We are innovators, not protectors. Protectors are primarily concerned with looking back and guarding what was. Innovators allow looking back to be informed by what's ahead. Innovators make room for the inevitable movement of spirit. Innovators' work is informed by this spirit movement. It lets the living, breathing, ever-changing spirit in, compelling us to kingdom work, which often requires making things new. This can be scary and off-putting to people. The unknown makes us all more vulnerable, constantly having to hold things lightly and keep our collective ego in check is a ton of work. Sifting through what's actually spirit and what is dominant culture manipulating our interpretation process is difficult. The work of penitence and peacemaking and reconciliation and healing and radical love, all of this can be exhausting, it can be confusing, it is the road less traveled to be sure. And there are a lot of examples to follow around here. But there is one, Jesus, the greatest innovator that ever lived and as followers of Jesus, we inherit his work. So yes, We will dismantle where necessary. We will abandon when it's crucial. We'll throw some stuff out. We'll reclaim and reframe and we'll recreate. But we will also make things new, totally from scratch and with Spirit's blessing. We will work toward a vision for this world so beautiful, so full of love, so wild and radical and right now and urgent. It may freak a lot of people out. But it's a vision that's grounded in our understanding of the ethos of Scripture and of the life of Jesus. We are innovators. It is simply in our nature to look ahead, even when it's hard. It is in our collective nature to trailblaze. And so that is what we will do.
praise God, that's what we're going to do. Amen.